Promo Kitchen is an all-volunteer, nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, please visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. One of the ways you can get involved is by donating to our cause. We rely on our community for financial support to help cover the cost of producing our educational content and our networking mixers. You can donate today right from your phone at promokitchen.org donate. Thank you so much, and let's get started with the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring boundary pushers, rabble-rousers, freaks, and geeks who are shaking up the $20 billion promotional products industry. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and joining me in the co-host chair today is Larry Cohen, president of Axis Promotions in New York City. Today, we welcome Seth Mattison to the podcast. Seth is an internationally renowned expert on workforce trends and generational dynamics. As founder and chief movement officer of FutureSight Labs, Seth advises many of the world's leading brands and organizations on key shifts happening around talent management, change and innovation, leadership, and the future of work. Over the last 10 years, Seth has shared his insights with thousands of business leaders and has received accolades from many of the world's best brands, including MasterCard, Johnson & Johnson, Microsoft, and Disney, to name a few. Seth's experiences are highly applicable to the topsy-turvy world of promotional products, so we are honored to have him here with us today. Seth, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here, man. Mark, thanks so much, Larry. Pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start off with a question about your new book. So you've written this great new book. I think it just hit the shelves. It's called yep. The War at work. And I always love to ask authors about the key insight that drove them to write the book in the first place. Mm, great question. So as you mentioned, you know, we have been researching, writing, speaking on workforce trends, generational dynamics, marketplace shifts with consumers for about 10 years now. And when I first started, we took kind of a specific narrow focus, specifically around generational shifts. So we were thinking about at the time, traditionalists born prior to 1946, baby boomers born from 46 to 64, Generation Xers born between 1965 and 1979, millennials born from 1980 to 1995. We were kind of thinking about those four groups, and I was very lucky I had a chance to partner with two best-selling authors early in my career named David Stillman and Lynn Lancaster, who wrote a bestseller back in 2002 called When Generations Collide. And when we started to work together, the focus, you know, 10 years ago was really starting to think about millennials. Millennials were the new kids on the block, also known as, of course, Gen Y. And they were gearing up. Harper Collins, their publisher, had asked them to write a new book on that particular segment. And it was an unbelievable opportunity to step onto a platform they had been researching for over a decade. Lynn's a baby boomer. David was a Gen Xer. It gave me great generational perspective. Yeah. We had a chance to collaborate for almost five years. And when they retired and sold the platform, it gave me a chance to launch on my own. And at the end of that kind of five-year period, I started to notice this kind of larger, what I'll call megatrend that was forming across the generations, kind of one overarching theme that really, in my opinion, helped leaders and helped organizations get their arms around rather quickly 
this kind of transformational shift that was taking place in the world. And it was impacting all industries. And it also was easier to articulate this change around the globe. When you talk about generations, one of the things that can make it a little tricky to navigate is what shapes a generation are the events and conditions that take place during a particular group's formative years. And our our formative years are those pre-teen, teenage years. And as you leave one particular geographical location and enter another around the world, the events and conditions that that group has experienced can dramatically differ. And so it's difficult in a 60-minute keynote or a 45-minute you know, quick talk, speak to a global audience because there's so much diversity. And so I was motivated to try to understand a larger global trend. And what emerged out of this research and this thinking of thinking exclusively about generations was this dynamic tension that exists between what I call hierarchies and networks. And this tension between hierarchies and networks and the battle that's playing out, which is where we got this title, The War at Work, it started to bubble up. And I spent the last five years interviewing, researching, talking to leaders across every industry about, I would simply just put an image of of an org chart, a hierarchy up on a slide in a room. And we'd have a 45-minute discussion around all of the meanings and values and expectations that we attached to that image. And all of a sudden, it became very apparent that there were all of these what I call unwritten rules that had been established in that world that were so well known, so embraced by leaders. And yet when we talked about the next generation of talent coming in play, they were completely oblivious to this world. And it was because they had grown up in the world of the network. And the light bulb went on and and this concept was birthed. And we've kind of been on a mission and a journey ever since to really get to the root of this challenge. Right. And and so you've done a great job of defining that the hierarchy is something that is a little bit more old school and traditional versus the network as being something that's potentially a more uh, 21st century phenomenon. So you've done a great job of defining them. Can you talk a little bit about how you marry those two concepts? Because I think, as you said, hierarchies aren't going away, just like networks aren't going away. Right. But the big insight is how they come together and how these big brands, as well as small businesses, are able to deal with those two realities. You're spot on. And where we've gone with the research and where we go with our content and our keynote speaking, our workshops, is that this is not a zero-sum game. Some people think, you know, as we're talking about it, they're like, you know, are you trying to say that the hierarchy is inherently bad and archaic and going to be blown up and eaten by the network and that the network is inherently good and better in the future? And the truth is, both have purpose and value in the world. I've yet to meet a single leader who doesn't acknowledge and say, you know, there are aspects of how our business is set up in more of a traditional model that was initially established coming out of the industrial revolution in a world that was much more predictable, a marketplace that moved much slower, customers that had relatively similar expectations as the decade before, where now our marketplaces behave and operate and feel more like a network. And so you have to say, are there aspects of our business? Are there aspects where the hierarchy and hierarchical thinking potentially hold us back? And then identifying places where, again, I go back to what I call these unwritten rules that anyone who's been operating business for usually around 15 years or more, they're well-versed in these unwritten rules, you know, paying attention to the hierarchy, respecting the chain of command, understanding the flow of information and the value of scarcity. The next generation that's coming up is completely unaware of it. And so it's 
How do we educate the next generation on the unwritten rules that we want to keep and maintain from the hierarchy? Yep. And getting to a place of letting go of those unwritten rules that no longer serve us in this new connected world. Yeah. I'll make a point about our industry and then I'll turn it over to Larry for a question or so. And Larry, I'd be interested in your perspective on what I'm about to say. So we, Larry and I have a perspective of being distributors in the promotional industry and we deal with a lot of suppliers. So the suppliers that are producing the apparel and the writing instruments and mugs and all that stuff that we purchase. And it's interesting on the supplier side, and this applies to distributors as well, but I think it's more unique to suppliers. So Bigger suppliers, more traditional suppliers will have these vast field networks of salespeople where you'll have a guy who's in Florida, you'll have a woman who's in Seattle, you'll have someone that's in New York, and they're covering various parts of the country. And it's a lot more hierarchical to borrow your term. Mm. And those suppliers, I think, do well. But I think that if you were to ask them, I think that they struggle with the overhead that they have as well as that hierarchical sales model. And if you compare that to some of these newer suppliers that are coming out that don't have the resources to have the person in Florida and Seattle and so on. And so they have more of these network oriented approaches where they're tapping social networks. They may have more of a home office or a head office approach where salespeople are not bound by geography, but they're just going out and they're getting business by virtue of what the web is bringing to them. And it's less hierarchical. So that's maybe my way of tying some of what you've just talked about with some of the challenges in our industry. And I would dare say that now we'll see if a supplier disagrees with this, and I'd love to hear from them afterwards, that there may be a little bit of envy from some of those overhead intensive suppliers that have got those vast networks of salespeople in the field. When they look at some of those smaller, more nimble, more network oriented suppliers that are starting to eat their lunch. Larry, what do you think? Well, I think where the industry in general is being challenged by, you know, I think along the lines of where Seth is going and we hear it every day is that everything's going to change every five years. I think everything is changing not only every 12 months, but continually changing. And as new things and new models get developed, I think the necessity for kind of that old school model of having people geographically located gets less important. I mean, we're seeing suppliers getting rid of catalogs because they can do it online. The only point I might make where I think a supplier might disagree is that we benefit from having people local because we're in the tangible-based business. So we love to see, feel, touch, and do all those other things. And when they're local, they facilitate a faster interaction. Although I could take the other side and say FedEx and UPS can facilitate really quick interactions as well about that. Seth, you want to chime in on that? I think that's a really good point as someone who does have more capital in play because they've got physical people located is they've got to be able to lean in and articulate what is the additional value you're bringing to the marketplace in those relationships. Because if you're not creating a remarkable experience, a truly remarkable experience, if they're not fully understanding the new expectations of customers today, the fact that they're more busy, they're more informed, they have more choices, they're more diverse than ever before. If you're not making my life easier, more efficient, more effective, then I don't want to do business with you. I'll default to the technology. I'll default to ease. And so it requires those suppliers to be very intentional with the experiences that they're trying to create with salespeople in those locations and not just essentially playing business as usual. And you also bring up a really good point, Larry, in that the marketplace is changing at a blistering pace today. And so new skills are required. 
we have to be able to be dealing with individuals who have a growth mindset, who have a continuous learning mindset, who are committed to every single day investing 30 minutes a day and 10 hours a week in educating themselves on changes that are happening in the marketplace. Because if you don't, you can render yourself irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was at a presentation yesterday and one of the things I said to them and we say often is, if I don't make your job easier, then we're probably not a great partner for you. Yes. It means that there's something in our relationship that's not working correctly. So it's interesting you say that because I think that is the challenge that we're all facing is we are being defined by things that are external to our companies, such as, you know, you can go on Amazon, I can have it tomorrow. So everybody yes. wants stuff faster and better and easier. And you know, it's incumbent upon us to, like you said, look in our business every day and do those intentional things that go on. So in terms of, you know, you defined it as a war, which is kind of interesting in your title. Then you mentioned it's not a zero-sum gain. I know there's a tension between the network and a tension between the hierarchy. When you're in your consulting role, are you seeing the tension between the people that are living in the hierarchy and the higher levels of the hierarchy and then the newer people coming in in terms of how they are dealing with them? As you talked about probably 10 years ago in your career, and as Mark and I hear kind of almost in anything that we do involving people, you know, everybody just wants to bash the millennials. Like, I can't deal with them and I'll have to work with them. And, you know, I'll say this very openly. Like, I happen to love that generation because I feel like I can engage them. They'll do better things for me and they'll help me grow my business and they'll tell me when I'm doing it the wrong way and teach me how to do it the right way. But I think there still seems to be a lot of struggle. And are you finding that we're many years into this millennial generation now? Are you finding that's changed or are you still finding there's a lot of tension? There's still a lot of tension that exists. I'm not surprised, Larry, that, you know, you say, I love this generation. I love the fact that they, you know, challenge some of our traditions and standard ways of doing things and make us rethink. Typically, I find as a leaders that have that kind of a mindset, the leaders who have a mindset, it's, it's on a couple of fronts. They have a mindset that says, I'm going to focus on the good this generation brings because there's lots of it. And they're very intentional about communicating expectations around the things that they're looking for. So things like work ethic and great communication skills and loyalty and fill in the blank, they are very intentional with shaping those behaviors and those attitudes inside their culture versus just being frustrated if they don't exist. It's like, okay, if, if I want to create an environment where people are more accountable, where people follow through, where people are willing to go above and beyond what's being asked of them. I'm going to get really clear about those values and those behaviors, and I'm going to set the expectation that those are expected in our culture from day one with individuals so that they're not surprised by it and that we hold each other accountable to it. And every time I interact with leaders who see the positive and the exciting things this generation brings and who are phenomenal at clearly articulating the values and behaviors they want in their culture and then holding their teams accountable to it, I see less tension between the generations, almost across the board. Let me ask a question. It's interesting, and, and I'm not sure you're going to have an answer to this, but maybe you will. Like, why are people not getting that? What is it, what is it about? <laughs> either the, is it age? Is it generation? Is it training? But you know, it still seems like people are really struggling with the concept of, you know, yeah. 
sharing why and sharing how and sharing a bigger vision, why is that so revolutionary to people? And why is there such a struggle against that? And people aren't getting I don't, it. You know, you know what? I don't know, but I'm sure glad they are because it keeps me in business. I'll, I'll <laughs> say that just right out of the gate. I mean, listen, the idea of leadership and getting better at leadership, centuries, decades, this stuff is not easy. The people stuff is not easy. I think people also get busy. They get head down in the work, right? You're working on the business. You're putting out fires. Again, I go back to these unwritten rules. It's very easy if you came of age in an environment where it was like, you know, do as I say, keep your head down, keep your nose to the grindstone, put in your time, keep your mouth shut, work hard, good things will happen, recipe for success. You know, there is no conversation about why. Do it because I said so. No one ever explained the why to me. The expectation was you get in line and tow the company line and, and that's it. And then all of a sudden to kind of have the tables turned because let's be honest, most of the things that millennials, and now we've got a new generation that's coming behind them, Gen Z, want and are asking for, most of the time I find they're not these things that, they're things that everyone wants. Let me say it that way. Would everyone like a little more transparency, have a little bit more clarity about why particular decisions are getting made in the business, to have a little bit more flexibility, to have a little bit more work-life balance, to have a little bit more meaning and purpose in their life? I mean, give me a break. Everybody wants those things. It's just that for earlier generations, you didn't have the ability to ask for them because it was like, if you didn't get in line, you can hit the bricks, pal. Like, it's not an option. If I gave you a couple minutes, you want to give like one or two pieces of advice to the leaders who are leading these organizations that might not be getting it. Can you give them a few tidbits that might help them right off the bat? Yeah. So one is the self-reflective question. What are some of the unwritten rules that you've learned from coming of age in the hierarchy? This is a question I've been posing to my groups for like the last three years. What's one unwritten rule that you learned? And, and they're things like, again, never going above your boss's head and information flows down. And it is a, you know, the recipe for success I always hear is keep your mouth shut, your head down, work hard, good things will happen, you'll move up, loyalty wins. It's just to think like, how has that world shaped me a little bit? And recognizing that the next generation growing up in a very different world, the world of the network with different rules. Just that alone gets people to step back and be like, okay, interesting. Secondarily, it comes down to culture. Okay. What is the culture that you want to set, right? You've got young talent coming in. Let's get very specific. I love to define culture as the formal or informal, agreed upon attitudes and behaviors that are either rewarded or corrected inside an organization. The formal or informal attitudes and behaviors agreed upon that get rewarded or corrected inside an organization. So what are three attitudes and or behaviors that you want in your culture, right? Is it hustle? Is it hunger? Is it generosity? Is it creative thinking? Is it accountability? You have to be able to articulate what those values and behaviors are. And then you have to be able to talk and think about how do you actually bring them to life inside your organization to make it stick. And this is the big kicker. Leadership is a reflection of culture. Culture is a reflection of leadership. So if you look at your culture and you're totally lacking accountability, you're totally lacking hunger, hustle, and drive, that is a direct reflection on leadership because it's leadership's job to be the embodiment of that. So number one, recognize this. What are some of the unwritten rules you learned in the hierarchy? Number two, Values and behaviors that you want to start to see in your culture. That's what shapes culture. Are you explaining and articulating them as soon as you onboard a new person so that it's clear? 
and let them know they're going to be held accountable to it? And then how do you make sure those values show up each and every day? That starts to get people on the path. That's great. Let's put aside the Gen Y generation for a moment. And let's look at Gen Z or Gen Z. We acknowledge that they're starting to nip at Gen Y's heels as consumers and employees. What differences should we as employers expect between those two generations? I think number one, we should be really excited about Gen Z coming in next. I get excited. It's a slightly smaller generation. Gen Z is roughly 72.8 million, where millennials were 80, so a little bit smaller, children of Generation X primarily. And I think a couple of just high-level big thoughts to think about is that they grew up in a very different environment than millennials, particularly from an economic, political climate environment, right? These are post-9-11, 2009 Great Recession children. Yep. Right? So we saw a huge number, 45% of Gen Zers saw their parents lose a job or their retirement savings literally cut in half. They've watched their older siblings go to university, you know, acquire $50,000 to $100,000 in student loan debt, and then not be able to get a job or be underemployed, you know, working at Starbucks and they went to, you know, school to be a journalist. And so it's created this aspect of number one, money matters to this group, where millennials maybe went to university to, discover themselves and to kind of self-actualize. This generation is about getting a job. In fact, there's an interesting statistic. 61% of Gen Zers that were recently surveyed said that they believed that they needed to decide on a career path before even entering college, which is just unheard of, right? As like 18, they're feeling the pressure of like, I need to pick a path. I need to pick a career and a degree in a place that's going to equate to a job. Because I've seen what happens if you're not intentional around that. Job security and making sure that their finances are in a secure place, much more important than, you know, with millennials, we saw a lot more of, we called it the trend meaning over money. They take less money if it was a job that really helped them contribute in deep, impactful ways and give back in the world. Not that those things aren't important to Gen Z, but security, financial stability is substantially higher. I think another big thing with this generation is, it's an amplification of what we saw with millennials in that they're very much a DIY generation. Do it yourself. I love asking parents of Gen Zers, and again, Gen Z born between roughly 1996 and 2010, how many of you have watched your Gen Z children teach themselves how to do something from watching a video on YouTube? Every single hand goes up. Their ability to seek out information and to self-educate and leverage those tools are unprecedented, even compared to millennials. And so we think about how will we onboard, how will they access and want to be trained and ramp up in a work environment is very much a DIY-based generation, more so than any we've ever seen before. I also think we're going to see interesting statistics around how many go to university. And this is something for the industry to think as a whole is like, you know, in our hiring, is it because they're questioning the value of a four-year education? You know, $50,000, $100,000 plus in debt to come out, like it doesn't equate necessarily to a full-time job in an industry or a career or profession that I want. And so, you know, do I have standards of we only accept four-year degree professionals? Are we willing to take someone who went to a trade, a tech, or a community college, or someone who's just an entrepreneur if they have the skill sets that we want? 
because they're really reevaluating along with their parents as to whether that's a decision they want to make. And I think that's going to have implications for each industry. It's interesting, Seth, when you describe the attributes of the Gen Z group, it sounds like they've got a lot in common with boomers. You know, this whole idea of, you know, security, planning, you know, thinking about what it is that they want to do when they're 18. Like that sounds like the kind of thing a boomer would be more associated with. Are there more similarities there or am I reading into that too, um, too far? Honestly, they're probably more similar to their Gen X parents, Gen X right. being their parents. But that's a good observation of just thinking, you know, for slightly different reasons, boomers, that was, you know, a necessity because for most boomers, their traditionalist parents, when that boomer turned 18, their mom and dad met him at the door and said, you know, we love you. We're proud of you, but you're 18 now. So hit the bricks, pal. Like, yeah. don't, don't come back. It was sink or swim. Most Gen X parents, at least when we talk about family dynamics, they're not taking that kind of a stance with their children. They've just watched the fact that the world can be a harsh place and nothing is promised and you're going to have to go out and you're going to have to hustle and earn it a little bit. And I think it's going to make them a little bit more of a realistic and more of a resilient generation than we maybe saw with millennials. Right. Which translation may be good news for the beaten down, more senior manager that has pulled his or her hair out with regard to millennials. <laughs> That's why I say I think people should be excited versus apprehension of like, oh my gosh, are we going to get an amplified version of millennials, more of yeah. millennials? And not to just bash on millennials because you know I am a leading edge member of that generation and every generation has their things they have to navigate and millennials certainly do too. But with Gen Z, because of those things, I personally am excited about what they're going to bring. Right. Seth, you know, I asked you a question. I'll let you give advice to some of the more resistant folk. What advice do you have for either the younger side of the millennial generation that's in the workforce or the new Gen Zs coming into the workforce in terms of helping to navigate and avoid this potential internal battle at work? Great question. And I, I try to work hard at, you know, when I have rooms that aren't just senior leaders, both sides have to work at this. It can't just fall on the shoulders of leaders and organizations to do all of the work. You know, I go back to the idea of culture, culture being the formal or informal agreed upon attitudes and behaviors that are rewarded or corrected. And in my own organization, you know, I brought on five interns this past summer to help. And so when I think about my organization, a couple of attitudes and behaviors that are important in my culture are number one, you got to be hungry. And this is my advice to that group is number one, be hungry. And what does that mean to have a, a mindset of hunger is someone who's hungry, they want more, right? They want more responsibility. They want more opportunity. And they're always willing to do more than what's asked of them, right? They go above and beyond. So I'm looking for someone who's hungry and I want that baked into the culture. If you show up with that hunger, good things are going to happen. Number two is humility. A mindset of humility is huge. To be able to be willing to say, I don't know. And I don't have all of the answers. There's some things that I maybe know and that I have perspective on from growing up with technology, but there's a whole bunch of things I don't know. And if I'm willing to say I don't know and I'm willing to ask for help, ask questions, have a mentor, and learn systems before you immediately bring solutions and better ways to perform, I think you're going to really set yourself apart. So hungry, humble, and then I look for an attitude of gratitude, right? Someone who shows up and they're grateful for the opportunity and they're grateful for the resources the connections, the relationships that they have around them, it puts you in a really powerful place. And my final advice for anyone who finds themselves in that position, you're new coming in, is make yourself extremely valuable. What can you do that no one else can? Where can you fill a gap? 
You're willing to stay a little bit later. You're willing to pick up the slack when someone else is falling behind. You're willing to take on a project that may seem a little bit challenging. Make yourself extremely valuable. What can you do that no one else can? Where can you fill in the gap? I think if they can lean into some of those, I know for me personally, that's someone that I'm looking to hire. It's interesting because you know, we've done uh, our market, I should say, that we did a podcast with Seth Godin. You know, one of the things he says is, if I have to explain it to you or teach it to you or tell you how to do it, then I probably don't need you mm. where I'm working. Because the world's gotten very flat. You can outsource and you can do all these other things. And I think your whole idea of making yourself valuable, and that doesn't always mean just a skill set. It means an attitude at work and how you otherwise do things. And I think that it's an important thing for people to remember. I know one thing that we've done internally, so speaking of like, you know, you've mentioned a couple of things, onboarding. We've got a team of recently hired people with probably between you know, six months and three years. You know, they're in charge of revamping our onboarding process to make sure that it's the best that it can possibly be. And our culture committee, they have a budget. And I have no idea what they're doing. I give them a vision of what <laughs> I want the culture to be. And then I get the same surprise and delight that, that goes on. And it's at every level of the company. And it really does make a, a big impact from you know, stuff on our desk for Valentine's Day to something around the Super Bowl and all these other like surprise and delights that really make a big difference within the company. Amazing. Amazing. Those are awesome real world experiences. And again, I'm not surprised having met Larry, I don't know how many years ago it was now, three, four, five years, you had an energy about yourself and an attitude, even in the sessions of just being open to ideas, being curious, that the fact that it's translating and that's how you're showing up with the way you lead your teams and your organizations, I'm not surprised, but I'm inspired and, and really, really happy for you and your team. I was going to say, every day is a work in progress. I love it. Seth, we've been talking about either Gen Z or Gen Y in the workforce. So from the vantage point of managing them, let's turn our attention to selling to them because a lot of people in our industry are not only interested in how to manage younger generations, but they're also equally, if not more interested in learning how to connect with the younger buyer. Totally. And there's a lot of companies that do it really, really well, but there's certainly a number of more tenured distributors in this business that may have grown up in a different era and had been really successful that now find themselves quite flat-footed when they're selling to a 23-year-old marketing assistant and they may be 57. Any specific thoughts about how someone who is a little bit more tenured in their career might be able to connect in a meaningful way with a Gen Y or even a Gen Z buyer? Great question. I think some of the obvious right out of the gate is like, obviously, this is going to be a very digitally charged technology first generation. But I'm going to give you a couple of specifics to think about, specifically in the promotional product space, where people will default to ease. We want to lean into the idea of people who are still, they want the personal relationship, and they're not essentially defaulting to Amazon. Millennials are essentially representative of what Forrester calls the age of the customer. And basically saying that today, our customers are number one, they're more busy, they're more informed, and they have more choices. So just break those down for a second. Number one, more busy. Today, right, the average mobile device user checks that device 150 times a day. Average office worker checks email 37 times an hour. We have an attention span of a, a little over eight seconds today. So you have this fraction amount of time to be able to connect with people. And so I'm constantly asking the question, are we easy to do business with? Am I personally 
easy to do business with? Am I giving people choice in which the channels they choose to be able to communicate with me? Or am I forcing them down a path to email or to call an 800 number? Do they have the ability to text? Am I giving them the ability to connect with me through new social channels and new social networks, all leveraging the fact they're more busy than ever before? They're also more informed, right? So they have access to more information. Again, you mentioned Seth Godin, flat, people have access to the information. They're doing more research on the front end. So that requires as sales professionals, we have to be, number one, more informed when we do connect with these people. You've got to be able to go into those conversations knowing they've already done probably a lot of their homework. And so what are the effective open-ended questions we're using to identify where they're at in the sales process, right? Research is showing they're 60% of the way through the decision-making process before they ever engage with a sales professional. Don't take them back and ask them entry-level starter questions. And then they, of course, have more choices. It's the Amazons. It's the Uberization of everything. And so there's two very specific things I work with sales professionals and sales organizations to think about where you can add additional value. Number one is bringing elevated experiences. If they're going to work with you, we are living in the experience economy. People have elevated expectations for unique and differentiated experiences. And so we're saying, are we being intentional about mapping out what are the brand touch points, the moments of truth, and the intentional experiences we're trying to create with customers throughout the entire sales process? Where can we add value? Where can we surprise and delight? Where can we make it unique? Where can we be easy to do business with? So number one, elevated experiences. And number two is elevated perspective. We have to help our customers think differently not about our business, but essentially about their business. So if we're dealing with someone in HR who is thinking about employee engagement, or we're dealing with a sales organization that's thinking about trade shows and sales products, how can you help that HR leader, that HR practitioner, that sales manager, not think differently about promotional products, but about their industry and their business, right? Can you come alongside that HR leader and give them new perspective about the concept of engagement, not promotional products, but employee engagement. What are the trends they want to be thinking of? You have to be able to add more value because if you don't, I'm just going to default to ease and use the technology. Well, and it's such a great answer because there's a lot of people in the promotional industry who are terrified of the Amazon or their ilk where a buyer can go and purchase something online at two in the morning in their slippers, right? And, and that's a dynamic part of the market, but there's also still a massive, massive side of the market that craves that experience, that craves that counsel, that, that wants to connect with the brand beyond just the mere transaction. You know, a brand, and they're not in the promotional product space, but it's a brand you and I, Larry, have spoken about, and, and Seth, I suspect you're quite familiar with them as well. Casper, what they've done in the mattress yes. space is, yes. is an incredible story of e-commerce excellence. But if you just wanted to buy a mattress easily online, well, you could probably go to the big box store and buy it off their lame website and it would just come to you or you just go into their store and do so. Whereas what Casper has been able to do, as well as several other companies like them, has been able to create this experience around their brand that is so much more than just buying a mattress online. And I think that companies like that are really the wave of the future and they're doing such a great job of catering to both how people want to buy, but also giving them that personalized experience. And 
I think that that's a lot more exciting than just buying a lame coffee cup online at two in the morning. Completely agree. And that's a great example. Casper is a great example of that. Hey, Seth, so we uh, just maybe one or two questions, and then we'll turn it over to you to provide some parting words in terms of how people can contact you and maybe some final thoughts. In my intro, I indicated that you've spoken to countless business leaders. You've spoken all around the world. You've spoken to the world's biggest brands. If you're comfortable, I'm curious if you can tell me a specific company that you think is killing it as it pertains to <laughs> selling to younger customers. And I don't want to get you into trouble or you know lose an assignment, but I also want you to tell me about a specific company that sucks at it and why. (laughs) Oh, man. When is this podcast running? I'm trying to think of like (laughs) what events we have coming up. Well, Uh, you could use it as a sales pitch, right? You know, throw them under the bus and say, hey, here's how you can help them. Well, (laughs) so I'll give one probably pretty unexpected brand that's doing interesting things, and that's Chevron. So, Chevron in their lubricants division, they distribute through what they call marketers, essentially distributors. But what they have done an excellent job of with their marketers is helping them understand the value of they use Salesforce, their CRM, and getting these, you know, what you could consider, you know, relatively experienced, somewhat old school sales professionals who are now selling to a you know, more digitally charged, many times millennial buyer is understanding the value of leveraging that CRM, putting great insight into the system after every call, every engagement, because what Chevron's doing is they are essentially turning the power of thought leadership and drip marketing to the max so that they're able to now finally, for the first time, push out provocative, thought-provoking content to those marketers' customer communities and are able to then send back really great data and insight to those individual sellers to say, listen, you know, we've been putting out this content over the last three months. You've got 10 buyers in your marketplace that have been engaging with this kind of content through our channels. Now, you can take that and you can leverage that in your conversations to have more effective dialogue specifically around things that they are obviously interested in. So they've taken these maybe quote unquote old school sellers, helped them understand the value of data, business analytics and insights to use it to elevate the impact they have in the one-on-one face-to-face relationship. So it's like there's still a one-on-one face-to-face relationship, but they're just using these new tools to make them more effective. And I don't think people on the outside would think a brand like Chevron or a lubricants distribution model, they would be an example, but they're really starting to turn up the juice on that. Now, a brand that is, I don't want to go so far as to say they suck, but let's just say <laughs> they know that they're struggling and they're trying to do something about it. That's Tiffany's. So Tiffany's is you know this iconic American heritage brand that is struggling immensely with connecting with the millennial buyer. The brand itself, a number of years of declining sales, they're having a very difficult time engaging the millennial buyer. And they're trying to figure out how do we maintain our history and heritage while still being relevant to this new generation. And the truth is, it's like they're trying to reinvent the in-store experience in new ways because, quite frankly, it doesn't look any different than it has for the past 50 years. And 
when a 50-year-old mom walks in with a 20-year-old daughter and the 50-year-old mom sees the black and white picture of breakfast at Tiffany's and is like, loves it. And the 20-year-old daughter is like, who is the lady in the black and white photo? I don't know who she is. And it's the main photo in the entry of the lobby. The brand has to step back and say, how are we building bonds and connections with this next generation? Because we're currently not hitting the mark. And so they're trying to rethink how they can bring digital into the actual store experience, how they can reinvent the actual cases and the way in which they display jewelry, how they can engage in the digital space in ways that maybe they haven't in the past. And you know, I don't know if you saw their CEO step down two weeks ago, right as they released their huge you know, Lady Gaga commercial at the Super Bowl. And you know, whether or not it will move the needle at all with millennials, or they're just kind of like, okay, whatever. They would be an example of a brand that is really struggling to connect with that group. You look at Tiffany's, I mean, I think they've done a really excellent job of really marketing that traditional, expensive, exclusive product, you know, Fifth Avenue store, fancy pants and all that. But I just think you're right. The generations have evolved. There certainly is a lot of money within the millennial class, but I feel like they would be looking to spend it in a different way and invest in brands that maybe speak to their value set a little bit more. You bring up a really good point, though, that you know you think Tiffany's is like high-end exclusive, but they're also trying to play the other end of the market. They have a big segment of $500 and under you know, silver line products that competes against yeah. the Pandoras yeah, and the yeah. David Germans, and, and they get beat there. But then on the high end, they're also not Harry Winston or, or Cartier. And so if, if you live in the middle, the middle is getting squeezed. The middle is not a place you want to live today, and they are going to have to make a decision one way or the other because you can't. I think this is relevant for everyone listening. You can't be all things to everyone. They have to get clear about who they're going to be and then really step in and own that. And I think that's true for all of us as we think about how we position our brands. Right. Hey, Seth, I'll ask you one more before giving you the soapbox to share some information about how people can contact you. Can you share with us any favorite books or blogs that you would recommend folks read to get more up to speed with some of the themes that you've been talking about? Of course, your books would be included in that list, but anything else? Yeah, great question. I'm going to give you three books. The first, which is one of the only books that we've found that really addresses head on this whole idea of hierarchies and networks, is a book by Peter Hinson called The Network Always Wins. How to Influence Customers, Stay Relevant, and Transform Your Organization to Move Faster Than the Market. Mm. And it's a really, I mean, it's, he's probably one of the foremost thought leaders and has been great for us to look to in thinking about hierarchies and networks. The other is a great example of a leader who is navigating this transformation from a hierarchical world into a network world. And that book's called The Open Organization by Jim Whitehurst, who is the CEO of Red Hat. And a great forward on there from the great author and professor Gary Hamill. And that book, The Open Organization, is a great example of taking, you know, maybe what is more theory in the network always wins and applying it pretty specific to a leadership perspective and practical insight inside an organization. And then I'm going to give a plug for my book, The War at Work. And I'll tell you what we did differently is that we actually wrote this book in fable format. We wrote it as a fable and we wrote it in a relatively, very intentionally digestible amount, uh, length of copy. It's only 150 pages and not that we didn't have more to put in, but it, you know, it's this whole idea of people are more busy than ever before. And most of the business books, and I'm guilty of it too, sitting on my desk, 
they don't even get cracked or we don't get past the first 50 pages. And so we wanted to write a book that was not dry, that was not boring. The story is said it follows essentially two leaders, two basically Gen X leaders who started their career in 1992, who came of age in a hierarchical world of work and have had to adapt and learn how to lead in more of a networked world and how they started to let go of some of their old unwritten rules and embrace and adapt new. And I think it's going to speak to the heart of so many leaders today who find themselves essentially sitting in between these two worlds. Yeah. got great practical insight and stories, and I hope people love it. The War at Work. It's going to be available on Amazon starting the second week in March. You'll be able to get it there. And you can obviously follow me, SethMadison.com, Seth Madison across all social channels, Facebook, Instagram. Twitter and Snapchat, and anything I can do to help, please don't hesitate to reach out, ask questions. I'd love to keep the dialogue going. Seth, thank you so much on behalf of the Promo Kitchen community. This was an absolute roller coaster ride, and thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I appreciate the invite, Mark. Larry, thanks for your time. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. You can also show your support by donating to our cause at promokitchen.org donate. We would sincerely appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.